State of Wisconsin versus Kyle Rittenhouse. As to the first count of the information, Joseph Rosenbaum, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. On Friday afternoon, we got the verdict in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Not guilty on all charges. Not guilty of homicide or attempted homicide or reckless endangerment. For weeks, the country has been watching this trial. Kyle Rittenhouse is the white teenager who shot three people, killing two of them last summer in protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin. National reporter Mark Berman is one of our colleagues who's been covering the trial since it began. This was a bit of a surprise because this was not what people have been expecting the last couple of days. The jury has been deliberating since first thing Tuesday morning, and legal experts say that the longer it went on, the more likely it was that there were some sharp divisions in the jury room, that they couldn't agree on some or all counts, and that it was likely we were going to see some form of a deadlock or a split verdict. So that part is a surprise. Today, we're talking about why the jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty and what this verdict means for the country. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 19th. When the verdict came in just after noon in Kenosha, the reaction was emotional but somewhat subdued outside of the courthouse. Reporter Kim Belware has been outside the courthouse in Kenosha, talking to people and protesters as they heard the verdict come in. It's not right that that guy's 17 years old. 17 years old! Guys, gun charge dropped! When does that happen? When does that happen? A 17-year-old with gun charge dropped? It's It's bull! If you was black, you'd have got executed in the street. Exactly. You'd have got executed in the street. For many people who've been watching this trial, the big question right now centers on the jury and why they acquitted Rittenhouse, despite the undisputed facts that he shot and killed two people at a protest and wounded a third. So the charges against Rittenhouse stem from the August 25th, 2020 shootings that were during the unrest in Kenosha. Jacob Blake had had just been shot by a police officer. The city was sort of on fire. And with footage of the rioting going sort of viral online and on TV, a bunch of armed people went into Kenosha, including Kyle Rittenhouse, saying they wanted to protect property and help protect people. Now, that night, Kyle Rittenhouse crossed paths with a few people, uh, and he shot three of them, killing two of them during confrontations. He said during the confrontations he was threatened. He said two of the men tried to pull his gun away. He said the third man pointed his gun at him, and he was protecting himself and protecting his life. And in Wisconsin, the self-defense law allows somebody to use force, including deadly force, if they reasonably believe that they have to do it to protect themselves in that moment. And Rittenhouse was charged with several counts, including two different counts of homicide, two different counts of recklessly endangering someone's safety, and a count of attempted homicide. And in all of those counts, he argued against them, saying he had to protect himself, so he had no choice. So let's talk a little bit more about what actually transpired during the course of this trial. Um, You mentioned a little bit about what the defense was arguing, and how did you see those arguments come up, and what were the moments that stuck out to you in which those arguments seemed to really land? 
Well, I mean, really during the trial, there was a sense among some legal observers that the prosecution was having trouble. You know, there were witnesses who would testify that the first man that Rittenhouse shot was acting erratically and tried to take his gun. And then one of the one of the men that he shot, the only man he shot who survived, testified against him. But he acknowledged on the stand. Did there come a time when you were running that you did pull your gun out? Yes. That Rittenhouse shot him only when he raised his gun, pointed it at Rittenhouse and approached him. So it was sort of viewed during the trial as essentially the evidence and the testimony was kind of leaning Rittenhouse's way. Prosecutors, though, argued repeatedly, including at moments when they were actually questioning Rittenhouse when he was on the stand, they argued that he was not under threat, that he was the threat that night. They argued that essentially Rittenhouse brought this gun, Rittenhouse provoked all of this, and that after Rittenhouse shot the first man and started leaving, that people in that crowd assumed he was an active shooter and that they had to respond, and that's why they, they chased him and tried to take his gun. So that was the argument prosecutors mounted. And why do you think that fell flat ultimately? Well, the jury was given written instructions that essentially laid out Wisconsin's self-defense law. And under the self-defense law in Wisconsin, somebody could use force they reasonably believe was necessary to prevent, quote, actual or imminent unlawful interference with their body, end quote. And essentially they were told Rittenhouse had no duty to retreat, although they could consider if he was able to, and that they had to consider if he provoked the attacks. But ultimately, they were told the self-defense law essentially boils down to whether he thought he was under threat, thought that threat was serious or deadly, and thought he had to use force to protect it against it. And they were also essentially told, did you think he acted reasonably at that time? And throughout the trial, the jurors watched over and over. They saw videos. They saw videos of the moments of the shootings, of the chaos on the streets, of sort of people running around and, and yelling and screaming. And they heard testimony from people. And essentially what they were told over and over from, from the defense and from their vantage point was that Rittenhouse was reasonably acting in that he had that fear. I also want to talk about Rittenhouse's testimony. I was cornered from in front of me with... Mr. Zeminski. People were surprised to see that he took the stand. It was very emotional. He cried. There were people right there. I think that there, for some people, that was maybe more emotionally affecting than for other people. But what was your sense of the reaction to Rittenhouse's testimony and whether that might have played a role in what the jury decided? Well, Rittenhouse's testimony was viewed as obviously one of the key moments of this trial because, you know, essentially in a self-defense case, jurors are asked, do you think this person acted reasonably? What would you or another ordinary person have done in their shoes? It's kind of hard to put yourself in someone's shoes without being able to hear from them about exactly what they were thinking. Now, when Rittenhouse testified, he did largely stick to his self-defense arguments. He repeatedly said he was threatened, he had no choice, he grew very emotional— but the prosecutor was arguing that Rittenhouse did have choices that he didn't follow up on, that he didn't choose. And the prosecutor also, during his closing remarks this week, he sort of sought to turn that testimony against him. There was sort of this high-profile moment where Rittenhouse emotionally broke down on the stand, and they had to call a break in the trial. And the prosecutor this week said, well, Rittenhouse broke down crying, but only about himself. He said Rittenhouse had, quote, no remorse. This is someone who has no remorse, no regard for life, only cares about himself. After the break, we talk about the Kenosha County Judge Bruce Schrader and how he became such a controversial figure overseeing this trial. We'll be right back.
I also want to talk about the role of the judge in this case. I heard at multiple at multiple points during the course of the trial about moments where the judge really played a critical role in deciding what would or would not be allowed and the the course that the trial was taking. Can you talk a little bit about this judge and how he became such an active participant in this trial? The judge was a very vocal presence in the courtroom at several moments, and the judge appeared to be sort of keenly aware of the notoriety of this case. He knew this wasn't every case. He knew this wasn't an average case. He knew that lots of people were very interested in following along at many points throughout the trial, several points. He paused to sort of complain about media coverage that he felt was inaccurate or improper or incorrectly criticized him. When I talked about um, problems with the media when this trial started, that's, we're there in part, not, not fully, but in part, because of grossly irresponsible handling of what comes out of this trial. There were also moments in court where he lashed out at the prosecutor specifically. He said the prosecutor was acting improperly. He sort of lit into him a couple of times in the courtroom, and you could sort of sense that the, the judge was just very annoyed with things the prosecutor was doing. The prosecutor argued he was acting in good faith, that he didn't mean to do the things the judge said he was doing, but there was sort of that lingering tension in the air. And in one interesting aspect, that actually didn't wind up sort of panning out. The defense had requested multiple times for a mistrial to be declared in the case. They said prosecutors acted improperly. They sort of cited the things that the judge got so mad about, but the judge never ruled on those. The judge left those things at, uh, dangling, and now they're moot. I also want to talk about the moment in which the judge, in the process of winnowing down the jurors uh, to the the final group that would be actually making the decision on Rittenhouse's fate, that he had Rittenhouse himself basically pick the names of the jurors that were going to be ruling on him out of a hat, essentially. I've had an almost universal policy of having the defendant do the picks. It had nothing to do with anybody's race or anything like that. And uh, I never had a complaint about it before. In fact, I haven't had a complaint about it here. Um, but uh, some people seem to be dissatisfied with that. And, yeah, uh, the judge got a lot of criticism for that, and he said that's a longstanding policy in his courtroom to let the defendants sort of pick out the, the names of the jurors who would be struck. You know, but that's one of those cases where the judge made it pretty clear that he was watching very closely and hearing. I don't, he didn't specify what exactly the media he was consuming was, but he strongly suggested that he was hearing and seeing people criticizing him and talking about why he did this and why he did that. And essentially he said, I will tell you this. Uh, I'm going to think long and hard about uh, live television, a trial, again, next time. I don't know. I, I, I've always been a firm believer in it because I think the people should be able to see what's going on. But when I see what's being done, it's really quite frightening. Frightening, that's the right word for it. But back to the subject at hand. So what do you make of this decision by the jury and what it says about where we are at as a country in our moment of national racial reckoning? There was a lot surrounding this case, obviously. It was very explosive. It was very contentious. It sort of touched on all of these sort of really, really fraught issues during last year, this year of racial reckoning and protest and and clashes in the streets that happened. But the jury was told again and again, this is not a political trial. This trial is not about anything you read or heard outside of it. They were told over and over only listen to what was presented in this courtroom. And when they went to the jury room, they were given instructions that said... This is a trial about self-defense. The defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse, has invoked self-defense. And essentially what they had to answer was, do they believe him? Did they accept his claims? 
Mark, I think what you're saying is so interesting because for many people, it does feel like there is this gap between the very limited information that the jury was acting on, but... What so many of us remember from that moment is this larger moment of racial reckoning, the fact that the shooting was born out of a protest against police shooting and injuring a Black man. And I think it's very easy to draw comparisons between how police treated Kyle Rittenhouse and how police treated Jacob Blake. And it's hard to divorce this one trial from those greater questions around unequal treatment. You know, it's interesting because... This trial stems from this moment when the country was sort of in the midst of this reckoning in the summer of 2020 over race and policing. And the shooting of Jacob Blake on August 23rd, 2020, made Kenosha the epicenter of that moment. But then there was this shooting two days after that sort of was of that moment, but also also kind of apart from it in a way. I mean, months later, the district attorney's office in Kenosha declined to charge the officer who shot Jacob Blake. And then that same office then prosecuted Kyle Rittenhouse. And it's just this moment when the entire country was looking at Kenosha because of sort of one of those controversial moments where a white police officer shoots a black man. And then a year later, we're looking at Kenosha again and we're focusing on the community because of a trial that's that's, that's pawned from that moment. But there's no police officer facing any charges. Instead, there was a white civilian who charged three other white civilians. And so what is going to happen with all of this going forward? I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse is free and is that it? I mean, if you ask people in Kenosha, my colleagues have been on the ground there and they say people there have been watching, people there have been keeping an eye on this trial. But they also say this trial is not exactly about Kenosha. This trial involves somebody who lived in another place, another town, who had connections to Kenosha but was not sort of from there. And essentially, they said the same issues that drew people into the streets to protest in August 2020 are still there today. Mark Berman is a national reporter for The Post. Kim Bellware contributed reporting. This story was produced by Ted Muldoon and Lena Muhammad, with assistance from Rennie Svernovsky and Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Dio and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Rennie Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>